You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today we have the great Jewel Burks. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Let's dive right into your story in terms of where you come from and how did you get into uh, tech? Sure. So where I come from, I was born in Mobile, Alabama. I was there for a few years until my parents got divorced and so then moved to Nashville, Tennessee and grew up primarily in Nashville and spent summers in Mobile uh, with my dad. And then I went to Howard University, so was a business major at Howard, uh, graduated in 2010 and started my career in Silicon Valley. So I worked at Google for a few years. Uh, Did you go to Google right out of uh, Howard? Right out of Howard, okay, yes. Nice. So yeah. actually interned at Google when I was still a student at Howard, and then when I graduated, moved out there to work full-time. Um, and that was really my introduction into the tech, technology kind of ecosystem and industry, and I fell in love. So I was out there for a few years and was exposed to the whole idea of people starting businesses from ideas. Uh, so I had coworkers that I would see one day in the office, and then I would hear that they quit, and then, you know, Months later, I would read about them on TechCrunch. So I was really interested in how people were just starting these technology businesses. And I think that kind of planted a seed. And later, obviously, I would um, start my own tech business. So moved to Atlanta in 2012. Um, took a job for an industrial distribution. What prompted the move out of Silicon Valley? Yeah, so actually, it was personal. Um, I really enjoyed working at Google, but didn't enjoy being so far from family. So um, between just, I had my grandmother was diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, my younger brother was ill. It was just a lot of family things going on. I wanted to be closer to my family, and so yeah. decided to move to Atlanta. And at that time, I um, wasn't able to transfer with Google. So actually reached out to a recruiter I talked to when I was in college. And um, she was working at the, the company I ended up working for, which was called McMaster Car. And it's a big industrial distribution company. So totally different than Google as far as what they do and the culture there. Um, but it gave me an opportunity to manage people at an early age. So I was 23 years old and had a team of like 12 people um, working for me. And so that was a great experience at that time. Um, and it also just exposed me to a totally different industry. So this was a parts distribution company selling like nails, bolts, screws, all that type of stuff. Um, and so that's really where I got the idea for part pick because I was managing in the call center and was the person who got all the escalations when people got the wrong part. So <laughs> a big part of my job um, was trying to fill those calls and figure out what, what went wrong on the initial call. Um, and so I had this kind of light bulb moment where I kept hearing the same thing where people were just struggling to recognize or struggling to um, articulate what they were trying to find. And sometimes they would say, well, I have one of what I'm looking for. Is it possible for me to send in a picture? And we didn't really have any way for them to send a picture in and us to do anything meaningful with it. So if they were a really great customer, we might say, okay, you can send us a picture via email or fax, and we will take it to the one guy in the warehouse that knows all the parts. But you got to imagine it's like half a million parts that they were selling. Yeah. So that type of knowledge, people just can't look at a picture or something and know exactly what it is. So I started to think, why can't there be 
an app for this? Why can't you just take a picture? And there wasn't an app in the marketplace at the time. Not this at all. totally an original idea. Yeah. Pure, so, yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, there's, I mean, obviously we know at that time, so this is 2012, 2013, um, there were apps for... You know, you could take a picture of a bottle of wine, for example, and find, you know, where that bottle is located or the same technology that goes into taking a picture of a check and being able to deposit it, um, underlying technology. So I knew that existed, but there was no one that had done that type of application for the parts industry. And so that's what I set out to do. What was your uh, process for setting up the company, fundraising? getting it off the ground. Yeah, so I started really diving into customer discovery. That's what I I read this book, The Lean Startup, pretty early on, and I figured that I needed to talk to a lot of potential customers first before I built anything or tried to do anything. Um, so I really changed... And you, you, you got that kind of knowledge from that book in terms of guidance and going in that direction before yeah. you launch a company. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think... I think I got that idea from the book. I'm not sure if I got the idea from the book or someone told me to read the book when I was thinking about what it was yeah. the first steps, but that's something I did pretty early on. Yeah. yeah my, my experience uh, as an entrepreneur is, uh, you know, there's all these tips and do this and do that. Uh, but reading, spending a, just a lot of time reading is underappreciated, underpriced from my perspective. Go ahead. Yeah. So I would say I, I learned a lot reading books in the beginning. Um, because I come from a family of entrepreneurs. My, both my mom and dad have run businesses during my lifetime. But to start a tech company is pretty different. Um, you know, both of their companies have been in different spaces. So I, yeah, started out with customer discovery, which was easy for me because I was working in the industry already. So what I would do is I would take extra shifts in this thing called the will, the will call, where people, customers would come and actually pick up product. And I would talk to the customers just about the problems they were having, um, just learning more about what I had in my mind as an idea, but I didn't want to lead the witness. So I would just talk to them about any problems they were facing. Yeah. And I would hear just these recurring themes that, you know, if they didn't know the exact part number, then they had difficulty locating the products that they wanted to find. And so um, I actually went to a program that they were offering at Georgia Tech as just a community program is a is something called atdc and they have community offerings where you can pay just a small fee and go to all these different events and and programs and so i went to that and they had this this one program that was on friday mornings at 7 a.m and this was a customer discovery program and so they encouraged me to interview i think like 100 people per week and just prove or disprove my idea the thesis that I had about folks maybe wanting to be able to have an easier way to search for products. And when I finished that program, it was very clear to me that people want an easier way to search for these types of products. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to pursue this idea. And the next step for me was how do I build out this type of technology? Because conceptually I understood it, but as far as the background to actually build it, I did not have that. So like I said, I was a business major in school, um, never built a computer vision system before. Um, so I did more research to figure out what would be needed to build this type of application or technology. And I found that Georgia Tech has one of the best 
programs in the country for this particular type of technology. So um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, computer vision, all of those, uh, Georgia Tech has really great programs for that. So I just spent more time on campus at Tech um, trying to find people who might be interested in the problem that I was looking to solve. And then, so this is where I would say I kind of try to start building a team. And also one of the first calls I made was to one of my former coworkers at Google who had left Google around the same time I left to work at Shazam. And so from a product perspective. Shazam, that's like the music app? Yes. Yeah, okay, yeah so yeah, tap a button. If you're playing a song, it'll tell you what song is playing. And from a product perspective, I wanted part pick to feel like Shazam. So making it really simple, press a button and get an answer. And so I reached out to um, Jason Crane, who was working at Shazam at the time, and just wanted to get his thoughts on the idea and see, you know, given that he worked at Shazam, did he think it was a feasible idea? And so us going back and forth evolved into him becoming my co-founder, um, eventually leaving Shazam and joining me to build out PartPick. So yeah, that's kind of how we got started. Your fundraising, are, are you just kind of bootstrapping in the beginning? Yes. <laughs> and where's that funding coming from? So I came up with the idea for PartPick on 12-12-12. I'll never forget the day because I sent my mom an email about it. It was like, it woke me up out of my sleep. Um, and then I decided that day that I wanted to pursue it, but I knew if I wanted to pursue a business, I would need to save money. So I started to try to change my lifestyle a little bit. You know, at this time, I just moved to Atlanta, young, yeah. having fun. Um, and I really just decided, okay, I'm not going to be spending money on the things that I was spending money on at that time. Yeah. Getting my hair done, you know, going shopping, all that stuff. Um, I just wanted to save money so that I could have some padding to pursue my business. Yeah. So that was initially what I did. Um, and then... I, when I actually quit my job, so I quit my job maybe six or seven months after I had the idea. Um, and I had, at that time, saved up what I thought was enough money to last me um, for maybe about a year. Um, but I quickly realized that it was going to take me longer than a year to get the technology to a place where customers would actually pay me for it. Um, so then I actually took out a loan and eventually... So this is like the first year I was just going based on my personal savings and then a loan that I took out. And then maybe almost a year in, I had a family friend who invested. Okay. Um, C can you share how much uh, you pulled from family and friends? Yeah. So my, I guess what people would call a family and friends round was $100,000. Two family friends both wrote $50,000 checks, um, the sings that are really dear to my heart, family, friends, and then a, someone who was a, a customer of my mom's who had just seen me grow up through the years and trusted that I would build something cool. Um, they they wrote the first checks in and really... And did you share your uh, deck or business plan with them? Yeah, I yeah, did. Yeah. I did. So at that time, um, I also did an accelerator, which I'm always hesitant to talk about because I don't know how helpful it was for me personally. Um, but I will say one thing I got out of it was that I... I was able to really refine my pitch. So, um, yeah, I did a deck. Of, Who was giving you feedback to refine your pitch during this process? The accelerator I did was in New York. So I kind of used that as the destination after I quit my job. I was like, okay, I'm getting into this accelerator. It starts, I think it started like July 
first or something. And so I quit my job and then moved up to New York to do the accelerator. Um, and the people there, who like the folks who are running the accelerator, plus a network of mentors, we have pitch practice maybe once a week, and they would say, "This makes sense. You should refine this, work on that." You know, and that over the course of twelve weeks got me to a point where I think I had a pretty solid pitch. All right, I want to highlight two things for the audience. Is one, uh, Joel became a researcher in not just reading in terms of books about business customers, but she went out into the field to talk to customers before she started investing money into the idea. And I think that's an important point in terms of becoming a researcher, talking to potential customers of your product. What type of uh, problems are they seeing? Uh, And then the second one is giving stuff up. This is just a uh, a part of life where if you want something big in terms of doing big things like Jewel uh, has done, she had to give up some important personal stuff. There's no free lunch. I completely agree. Yes. (laughs) You, You have your family and friend round. And then what happens? Yeah, so I want to say one more thing about the family and friends. When I mentioned I, I sent my mom an email, the email was to tell her about the idea, and it was also to ensure that she had my back in this journey. So I feel like that's important, too, because a lot of times we set out on doing things and haven't really talked to our, our support systems. And really, I've had to lean on folks a lot through the course of the time that I started my business. Um, and so I think that's just something to say. I didn't have a huge family and friends round as far as, far as money that was put in, but I did have, you know, my mom rooting for me and saying, if you need to come home and if things get rough, you can. I think that's a, a critical piece of it, too. You, you felt you had a buffer if you failed. A buffer in the sense of I just had I had a crew, a small crew of yeah. folks that were encouraging me throughout the process. So I never felt like some people are hesitant about starting businesses because they, maybe their parents are saying you need to keep that steady paycheck or, you know, something to that nature. And I felt like I had some room if if it didn't work out. At the end of the day, I was only I was young. I didn't yeah, have much young. to lose. Yeah. So but I knew that if it fall, if it all falls down, I can at least go back home yeah. <laughs> and my mom won't be mad at me about it you and know your parents were entrepreneurs yeah so my okay. mom she's been an insurance agent so she's had her own insurance agency for the past 20 plus years and so I grew up watching her build that business up and now she's one of the top agents in the country and culturally yeah of course Ryan's parents are were entrepreneurs yeah yeah uh, and your parents are entrepreneurs mm-hmm. how big a piece uh of that in terms of that kind of parenting education and culture uh, is relevant for African-Americans to kind of scale success in entrepreneurship and tech. Yeah, I mean, for me, I can only speak on my experience. I think it's been critical because I saw examples. I saw, you know, when I was a little girl, my dad ran our family businesses that my grandfather has started. And this he started these businesses in the, you know, 50s and 60s in Alabama. And so I watched my dad run those businesses when I was a kid. And not just watch, but I also had to participate. So I remember as early as, you know, five and six years old, 
being the cashier and the teller and kind of being involved in the businesses um, from a very young age. And same with my mom's business. I was knocking on doors and handing out flyers and, you know, doing all types of things for them. So I think that being exposed from the perspective of what does hard work look like and what does it look like when things are going very well in the business and what does it look like when things are not going very well and kind of the resilience to stay on that roller coaster throughout the years, I had that in the back of my mind when I was starting. So I do think that exposure early on to business and what does it look like? And even at the parenting uh, level. Yeah. Yeah. And also the sacrifice. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, my mom was just starting her business. So I saw her sacrifice and I became very independent at an early age because my mom was, she was running her business. So I was cooking dinner at home, you know? And I think that kind of shaped me as far as my mindset going into it. I knew it was going to be a sacrifice and I knew that I was going to have to work hard if I wanted it to be successful. You raise your, your family and friends around, uh, it's time to build a team. Mm -hmm. And how did you think about that? And can you highlight any mistakes you made in terms of, building a team yeah so i mean i thought about it from the perspective of what am i really good at and what am i not really good at so starting with myself and kind of doing an analysis of my pros and cons strengths and weaknesses and trying to fill in the gaps with people who either were strong in the areas where i am weak or from a skill perspective were good at things that i'm not good at yeah um and so that was the fundamental for the first few people was how do i find people who really can round out what we're trying to do here. So as I mentioned, Jason, we had previously worked together. So already had a relationship from that perspective. Um, and he was exposed to the, the product side of things that I hadn't yet been exposed to. And that to. was your co-founder? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Dr. Nashley Cephas, she became our CTO and she is a genius when it comes to algorithms and building technical systems. Um, she has her PhD from Georgia Tech. And I, I mean, how did you find her? She has been like my biggest blessing yeah. <laughs> because you don't come across. She's one of like 10 black women in the world that has her her background as far as yeah. um, her degrees and everything. But I found her through talking to people. I, I met a, a couple guys and told them what I'm working on and initially had brought them on to help me and then realized over time that actually she was a better fit in terms of skill set um, for our team. So was able to work with her directly and, and you know, so that was a process as far so, as. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that's good. That's another thing I want to highlight. Uh, you know, you didn't just go out, oh, I got to hire someone. Uh, you started sharing with your network what you needed so they can be of assistance and maybe they're close in proximity of somebody that could do a great job like you you found, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think a lot of people hold their ideas very close to the chest. And for me, I initially I remember I was an, I was a little bit nervous to share, but then I was given some good advice early, which is nobody's going to drop their baby to take care of yours, which means, you know, if you have something that's good and you're passionate about it, most other people do too. So don't worry about them stealing the thing that you're trying to pursue. Um, do you, do you yeah. believe that that could be a cultural thing where maybe that's elevated uh, in our community? Um, you know, I remember hearing about there was a time where a lot of our people would not put money in the bank. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they would keep cash under the bed. And do you think that there may be a elevated paranoia of sharing ideas, but hey, this is just how it works. You're going to have to open this up for you to get this thing going. And that's the norm. That's market. Yeah, yeah. I, I think absolutely. There's an, an elevated paranoia, but it's something that we are going to have to get over because yeah. you can't. You can't build a successful business 100% by yourself. You have to find people that can help you. So, um, yeah, from, and especially in my case, I, I could not, I did not have the skill set to, to build out what I was, what I had in my mind. So I had to find people who could help me build it. And honestly, I shared my idea with people and I got threats. You know, early on, I remember this one guy that I, I met, um, I can't remember how I met him, but he, I figured out that he wasn't the right person. Like he didn't have the right skill set for what I was trying to do. And so I said, oh, you know, I don't, we we can't work together just because from a skills perspective, you're not the right fit. And I remember he was like, well, I really like this idea. So I'm going to just pursue it myself. And that happened actually a couple times throughout the course of, of part pick. Were were you signing NDAs though? Yeah, but yeah, honestly, I feel like NDAs are nice nice but they don't they're, they're they not don't really, really enforceable work. yeah yeah so but the the reality is of the people that said oh well i like this idea i'm just going to pick it up and try to do it none of that worked because for whatever reason number one it was a really hard problem to try to solve number two it wasn't their idea and they didn't have the right story so in my case i have a a very compelling reason why i decided to pursue the idea i worked at google so i had this exposure to using technology to solve problems. Then I worked at an industrial distribution company and saw firsthand you saw the, the problem. problem. Yeah. You know, I had a personal story where my grandfather couldn't find this part for his tractor and I wanted to help him find it. So I, there was a lot of different things that kind of worked together for me to be the person to pursue this particular idea. And it's not something that someone else could just pick up and be like, oh, I'm going to do this yeah. and not have any background in it. So um, I say that to say, it may be that someone says, oh, I like this idea. I'm going to pick it up. But at the end of the day, it's all execution. So, yeah, people, millions of people probably have the same ideas. But the winners are the ones who actually go to work every day and try to make it happen. You know, you built your team and it's time to raise some more money at some point. Yeah. Talk about that experience. Raising money is probably my least favorite part of being an entrepreneur that needed to raise money. And I say that specifically because I don't think all people who start businesses need to raise money. Yeah. I think that that's something that media has made to the bubble culture out of Silicon Valley. Right. It it makes it seem like that's what you have to do if you want to start a tech business, but that's not true. Um, But for me and what I was doing, I did feel like it was appropriate for me to raise more capital because one Computer vision engineers are not cheap to hire. So, you know, I'm paying people six figures out the gate. (laughs) I need to have some more money in the bank to be able to pay them. Um, And then, you know, a really robust artificial intelligence system takes time to build, right? So we had to grow a database of millions of parts. We had to um, build algorithms specific to recognizing things like threads per inch. Um, you know, there was a lot of different pieces to make the system work. And so we were going to have to expand the team to be able to do that. And so that's why we ended up raising money. And we also believe that 
the business model was solid. So what we were doing was we were licensing the technology as an API out to distributors, retailers, manufacturers for them to embed inside their mobile apps and put on their websites. And they were tra- we were charging them, you know, lots of money to do that. So yeah. we believe that we could scale it up and, and build a big business that way. Um, so, yeah, that's why I raised money. And the, the, what that looked like was me... My strategy was getting investors to come to me. So I did a lot of pitch competitions, tried to get myself out there um, so that they would know who I was and what I was trying to to do. And just because also I didn't have a great huge network in the venture capital space. I didn't know a lot of investors. So I had to figure out ways to get in front of them so that there kind of be a buzz going. And that's really how I I ended up raising – about $2 million. And how many investors uh, did you pitch to? Whew. I pitched to over 200 investors. And Another important point uh, <laughs> where it, it fits with the sexism in the industry where the successful entrepreneurs that I have talked to that have raised capital, they have, it seems like 100 is the magic number. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've t- you know, uh, And then you come and, hey, I pitched it 200 yeah. with a totally original idea mm-hmm. uh, with subtraction. Uh, so uh, talk about some rejections that were memorable for you. You know, I try not to think too much about the, the, the bad, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm trying to think. I remember. So the biggest objection I got was that we were not located in Silicon Valley. Um, so I started. Why did they take the meeting then? They know, you know, don't they they know, know the whole yeah. time, right? Yeah. Exactly. I'm like, it's like a convenient excuse. It sounds like exactly, yeah. exactly. I would think, you know, I'm flying here from Atlanta because a lot of times I would have to fly out to Silicon Valley or New York or wherever. Um, but yeah, I, I hated that reason because I was like, you've known this whole time. This is where we're located. Anyway, that was one. Um, I did get people that were very blunt about I've never invested in a female entrepreneur. The investor just straight up told yeah. you that, like, I don't see you. Yeah, and exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. I mean, that was a, it was a, a nuanced thing, but sometimes investors would be like, look, I like this idea. I think you're smart. I like your team, but I think you're going to have too much trouble selling into the industry you're trying to sell into being who you are. So I can't invest in this business because I don't think you're going to be able to get the clients because I don't think that the old white men who run these companies are going to listen to you. And was that more of a race thing or a gender thing? People ask me that all the time, and I never—I don't know. I mean, I live in this body, and I w- walk in the world like this, so I don't know. I never know if it's because I'm black, because I'm female, is because I'm young. I don't—I I don't know. Yeah, so I heard— um, <laughs> I remember talking to bankers at uh, Allen and Company where I was raising uh, capital and one of their media bankers, he was blunt with me. He said, look, your business, because it's African-American focused, you're going to get lower advertising CPMs uh, in terms of revenue per thousand impressions for the audience. And he said, so your valuation, because you're you do black media is going to be discounted. Because you're black. Uh, and he was kind of, I think, being honest. Where as I went along, I kind of saw what he was talking about. Yeah. He's actually being honest. Yeah. But I took it a certain way. Like, right. why should I have to accept the lower valuation? But 
you know, that, that stuff is out there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I took some of what was told to me, depending on when I heard it, sometimes I took it personally. So earlier on, I would say, I think maybe I shouldn't be running this company because I'm holding us back because I'm black and I'm a woman and people are holding that against the company. Um, and then later on, I started to build up some armor around it and say, look, I'm the person I have the unique experience to build this. So it's me. I, I can't put a white dude in front of it just because that might make the meetings go better. Because actually, I tried to hire an older white male as a sales lead. Um, based on some of this feedback. Yeah, based yeah. on some of the feedback. And that turned out to be a disaster. How do you judge the feedback in terms of the white man? He's saying, look, the realness is because you're a black woman, I see a lot of discrimination and that's going to hurt my risk reward profile, my money. Mm -hmm. I'm just being real with yeah. it. It's not like I want this to happen, but how do you judge him telling you that? Do you, are you kind of uh, negative towards him because he tells you that or neutral? Like, how do you judge that? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, he's not wrong. Yeah. You know, it is, it is true. The industry that I was trying to sell into is very, racist industry very sexist industry as well so he's not wrong however i do i would say that now i can say well i sold my company to amazon so yeah. so now what you yeah know? and so next time around it'll you don't be believe different. that that was a valid reason to kind of evaluate your deal. i don't think it was a valid yeah. reason yeah i think if you know now that i'm on the other side of the table as an investor if i were me evaluating Jewel in 2013, 2014, I would say, okay, we're going to pair this company with folks who are well-connected in this industry to make sure that she has the right people walking her into the rooms. Because at the end of the day, it's a, it's a matter of who makes the introduction, right? So that's how I would approach it if I was investing in perfect. And how, how did you get so many uh, introductions? I imagine most of your... Uh your pitches came through introductions, but how did you manage that process and kind of get that type of opportunity to pitch to 200? Yeah, like I said, I used, I think my main thing was using pitch competitions. So I knew that I could get on stage and talk about what we were doing in a way that was compelling for people. And most of the time, the people that were judging the competitions were venture capitalists. So I did TechCrunch Tech Disrupt in 2014, and that got me in front of people from just about every VC firm out in Silicon Valley. And when I met with, and I stayed out there an extra week to take meetings with folks because they were coming to me after I got off stage at TechCrunch. And so from there, I got introductions. So even if they said, you know, we like what you're doing, but you're in Atlanta, so we can't invest. I would say, okay, that's fine. Can you tell me five other investors who might be interested in what we're doing? And so I would just use one event to kind of snowball into more introductions and then i would also follow up with people so maybe they say no today because you know location might be one thing or they might say we want to see you get three more clients and then i would go and i would say okay go get three more clients and come back and say okay we got three more clients what an excuse you got now <laughs> yeah yeah so i was notorious for going back and you know just keeping people up to date on how we were progressing and so there are some people that I met. I remember I met um, William Crowder, at, who was previously at Comcast Ventures and now has his own fund. I met him at the very first pitch competition I ever did, which was before I had anything. I just It was like an idea pitch. So that was early 2013 when I initially met him. 
he ended up writing a check in mid-2015. So it took two years of me knowing him, sending him updates, running into him different places for them to actually invest. And sometimes it takes like building the relationship over the course of time um, for, for it actually to come into your company as an investment. But I was just, I was on people. <laughs> yeah, that's another yeah. thing I, I hear from successful entrepreneurs uh, on Go is that when they get a no, they're not like, man, I'm mad and I, they should have said yes. After the no, there's a post-game strategy in terms of i still can work this investor yeah some of the investors after the no oh yeah 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 because if it's if they give me a reason why and it's a reason that i can control like go get some more customers okay i could do that that's easy yeah (laughs) so yeah uh what about investors saying this opportunity is not big enough i don't see a billion dollar business how much of that did you get um I got that from people who didn't understand the industry, but given that I was had worked in the industry and could tell them hard numbers about it, that one I was easily able to say, you, you don't know about the industry, but let me show you that the in- industrial distribution space is like hundreds of billions of dollar industry. It's yeah. huge. It is one of those, it's a, it's a sleepy one where you know, every single thing in this room is put together by these parts, but nobody thinks about it. So valuation runway or business runway, that wasn't really an issue for you. Where you, when you pitch, you're saying that this is a mat, this fits into the unicorn kind of lottery ticket that yep. they're looking for. So that wasn't really. That wasn't a huge, um, no, that wasn't a huge ob- you know, obstacle as far as how big is the industry because once I showed people okay you're not thinking this industry is not top of mind to you but if you look at the data you'll easily be able to see that this is a huge space um and we had so we're really a computer vision company in the industrial distribution space so we could come at it from both angles and we could say right now we're talking about computer vision for parts but our technology could go across multiple industries if we play it correctly so the pitch about how big can this business be that was never really the objection that we got it was more about can you execute can you build the technology can you are is your team the right team that are you in the right location those are the types of things that we had to work against but um yeah if this industry is big enough usually wasn't it but a lot of people just didn't have understanding of the space so they would be like i don't know much about that space i can't invest that was one thing that we got a lot Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You can check me out at Jamarlin Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.